0: I wanted to begin tonight by just briefly mentioning the ten paramis, or the ten perfections, paramitas, which are said to be the ten qualities that the bodhisattva perfected over the course of his many, many, many lifetimes leading up to his attainment of Buddhahood that every Buddha really perfects in the course of their path and uh, that each of us in our own way is cultivating and developing through our practice, through all the different aspects of our practice. So just going through the list in case you don't have it uh, at the tip of your memory. First one is dana parami, the, the beauty of giving, of generosity. Then the parami of sila, of conscious action, compassionate action, virtue, morality. Then the parami of nikama, Renunciation, letting go of what is not really necessary to our happiness, not hoarding, taking more than we need from the world or from each other. The parami of Panya, of wisdom, of coming to see how things really are through insight, through our meditation. The parami of virya, that the diligent, steadfast, balanced energy that is helpful in every aspect of the path the parami of kanti such a beautiful word the parami of patience, forbearance, endurance the parami of satcha of truth, truthfulness, honesty the parami of aditana, determination, a resolve not striving but just again steadfast in our effort the parami of metta of kindness loving kindness which also encompasses compassion and sympathetic joy in their various aspects and the last one crowning the list the parami of upekka of equanimity the great uh, vehicle of the practice and the great fruit of the practice as well so I like this teaching of, on the Paramis. Um, I found it very useful in thinking about practice over the years at different times. It's um, not so much part of the, the original teachings uh, given by the Buddha, although it's found in some uh, form in the original teachings, but it became much more important a little later on in the development of Buddhist thinking. But really this list of these 10 beautiful qualities presents just a slightly different perspective on the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path being, you know, the core uh, model for thinking about spiritual practice, for thinking about the path. And it's it's interesting that neither of these, neither of these models is linear. So the Eightfold Path, uh, of course, is usually presented as a wheel that spins. So it's not this linear path that we walk one step and then the next step and then the next step until we reach the goal. But it's it's a rotating uh, experience, you know. the Different parts of it keep coming back around and we see them more and more clearly, more and more deeply. Uh, there's always another chance to come back around to an aspect of the practice when it's relevant, when it's important in our lives. And this model of the parames, you know, it's also not linear it's not that we perfect one and then we move on to the next and we move on to the next again until we reach you know in this very linear way the end of the path but it's it's that all of these qualities are being developed in parallel all at the same time different speeds different rates Uh, sometime one is more up for us than another then it might change a different one is more up Um, when I think about the paramis I have this image that comes to mind of um Every summer, my, my extended family goes to a, a beach on the East Coast where there's a boardwalk and the kids love to hit the, you know, the, the rides and the, the games there and they always have this one game that's um, uh, water guns that you shoot into a little hole and it makes these various horses go across the racetrack. You know, it's supposed to be like a simulated uh, horse race. That, that, that's what it is. <laughs> the kids love it. They love to shoot the little water gun into the hole, and then depending on how well your, you know, your aim is, the horse, you know, kind of goes in these kind of jerky steps across until one of them gets to the finish line. So I think of the paramis as kind of being a little bit like that. You've got the ten horses on the track, and they're all kind of running, and sometimes one is more out in front, and another one's lagging behind. You know, um, except for the, with the paramis, there's not one horse that wins. You know, when they all get to the end, then we win. Then we all win. <laughs> So it's this this model of really, you know, working on many different fronts. Same as the Eightfold Path. And the the qualities that are being developed through walking the Eightfold Path are really the paramis, And the way, conversely, the way we develop the paramis is by walking the Eightfold Path. So it's these different perspectives on what we're about in our spiritual life. Linear models of practice, of which there, there are definitely those also, um, you know, they, they can become problematic um, just simply because the human heart and mind and system doesn't tend to work in these very neat, orderly, linear ways. You know, we're messy, we're complicated. Um, so even Mahasi Sayadaw and his teachings, he, he, you know he had a very rigorous classical Buddhist training in all the various disciplines, you know, really brilliant mind. And his style of teaching and many of his students' style of teaching would be to give these very... You know, the, all, of, all the lists and these, present these very linear teachings, very well-organized, orderly teachings on, you know, the aspects of the path and the progression of the practice. Um, but then it, it's, it's interesting, very often at the end of those, he would give this little caveat. You know, this is just the teaching order. He would talk about teaching order versus practice order and that the teachings are organized in a particular way and presented in a particular way to make them clear, to make them comprehensible, to make them memorizable, easier to commit to memory. But then what happens in practice can unfold in very different ways. It's not necessarily going to look like what's in the textbooks. So we have to be very careful about getting too attached to a linear model, if that's something that we've learned, if that's something that we've studied or been taught according to. You know, some of those are really valuable and can have their place in guiding us. But if we hold too rigidly to one of those very linear models, then it can be very limiting. It can actually hold us back in practice. Um, In my my life before the Dharma, (laughs) Uh, I was trained as an engineer, I worked as a, an engineer for a number of years before uh, dropping out and becoming a yogi and um, those of you with a, a science or engineering background are probably familiar with the observer effect that we talk about in experimentation. This, this phenomena, this, this dynamic of the way that the physical universe works that in the process of trying to observe something in nature, um, just the very fact of trying to observe it, of inserting our instruments into what's happening, uh, can shift what's happening, you know, it, it has an effect on what we're observing. So it, it can be very difficult, if not at the limit, impossible to actually observe something completely as it is in nature, because how we're observing affects what we're ex- observing. The famous early 20th physicist, Werner Heisenberg, um, said that what we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. Which is really true, true in the physical world, and it's true in the internal world as well. You know, we see this, um, we see this all the time, that the way we approach our inner experience, the way we pose the question of what's happening, um, can really affect the answer that we get, can really affect what we observe. So when we have preconceived ideas about what should be happening or what we should be seeing, that can really put blinders on us. It really limits our view of what we're open to taking in, the data that we're open to taking in, so that we may miss all sorts of other things that are happening that are important, but that just don't fit within the parameters of what we have set for our practice. I just wanted to revisit this... um, quote from the Chanki Sutta that I mentioned earlier in the month when I spoke about faith talking about this link between faith and truth so this is the the guidance that Buddha gave to this young Brahmin Chanki who was asking about how does one protect the truth how is one a guardian of the truth and the Buddha's response was that if a person has faith then they protect the truth by affirming my faith is thus but they do not draw the conclusion, only this is true, the other is wrong. In this way, one guards the truth, but there is as yet no discovery of truth. So I I love the nuance of this teaching, as I said before, you know, that we we have a hypothesis, you know, we have a working theory about what is the truth, um, but we don't hold to it with that rigidity that only this is true and nothing else, um, because we don't know, (laughs) you know. So we keep that option open we keep a a skeptical mind, a discerning mind, one that's open to other possibilities, one that's open to truth and aspects of truth that we just simply may not have seen yet, may not have recognized yet. And then as we practice more, we come to see more and more of the truth, more and more pieces. Uh, A lot of you have been talking about this and discussing your practice recently that You know, you'd had some idea about your practice, some idea about the Dharma, some idea about some insight, and then, you know, we come on retreat here for however long, and the practice deepens, and we see, oh, actually, there's more to it than that. There's a bigger picture. And, you know, all of us that have been doing this for a while, we we get to see that happen over and over and over again. It's very humbling, which is part of this practice, you know, realizing where we are uh, on the path and in the universe and realizing just how much there really is to the truth and how much there is to see. So we really don't want to limit ourselves with some small view of what's going on or what's possible or what ought to be happening. All of those shoulds about what should be happening in our practice. So the point of our our spiritual practice is not to get the right answer. You know, which can be a mindset that a lot of us fall into just because of our conditioning. You know, I know I've got it, that we're supposed to you know read the book and then you know do the experiment and get the right answer at the end of it, the one that matches the book or matches what the teacher said. Um, and it's it's really easy and really natural to bring that mindset to doing this practice that we've read things in books, we've heard things from, things from teachers, and to to want to bring our experience, to interpret our experience into alignment with what we've read or heard. But the point of the practice is not to get the right answer. It's to get to the truth, (laughs) it's to get to the bottom line. And there's no way that we can do that by trying to fit our data to a predetermined conclusion. So this is what I wanna talk about more um, this evening, is the truth. Small topic, modest topic. <laughs> which is the, the seventh parami, the, the perfection, the beautiful quality of, of truthfulness or, or honesty, we might call it, or just simply simply truth, truth-seeing, truth-telling. It's just so relevant to thinking about our spiritual life and to really every aspect of how we approach spiritual life. What is it that we awaken to? What is it that we get enlightened about? Uh, when we speak about awakening or enlightenment, you know what is that about? It's about the truth. The truth will set us free. And that term, sucha, sucha parami, uh, which we usually translate as truthfulness, in the context of the paramis, um, really just means real <laughs> t- or true. So it's it's the same word that we use in talking about the four noble truths. That's the arya sucha, the noble truth. Or uh, that we use in talking about the universal characteristics, dukkha-sacca, anicca-sacca, anatta-sacca. Um, so this word sucha, that's the same one used for the parami, is just truth, truth in the deepest sense, really, in a very deep way, how things really are. So it's it's not just limited as it's sometimes interpreted to just uh, intentional truth. You know, as uh, and you know, did you spill that salt all over the floor? <laughs> or did you draw on the wall with the crayons? Um, which my children have sometimes difficulty answering those kinds of questions, honestly. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not just on that level. It's truth in a much deeper sense. So the perfection, the parami of truthfulness, is about making a commitment to truth. Really committing to the core value, we might say, of truth, of honesty. Um, committing to seeking and finding truth in all sorts of different contexts and situations really holding, coming closer to the truth as a guiding principle in how we approach life and living life in a way that really honors and cherishes truth and truthfulness Um, which can sound trite (laughs) in our society, you know, this is not uh, something that's particularly honored or valued in, in a lot of Western culture um, to say, you know, I'm, I'm seeking truth or I want to know the truth. I want to discover the truth. This can sound uh, idealistic, naive, you know, maybe at best. At worst, it can sound kind of glib, you know, superficial. Because of the connotations that it has in our society. Um, so in a way, uh, approaching this this parami of satya involves becoming more clear and more honest about truth. <laughs> You know, a lot of the times we have to let go of all our cultural conditioning and baggage around this idea of truth and continue to reflect, you know, what does this really mean for us? How do we really connect with it? Is there really the faith there that there is a deeper truth to be seen? Uh, You know, even if we can't make anybody else in our lives understand what the heck it is that we're doing. And this this one parami of sucha of truthfulness is, again, it's involved in all aspects of the Eightfold Path. And I've been working a lot with this um, recently in my own practice. And one of the reasons I'm giving this talk tonight is just simply because um, this is the filter that I'm seeing practice and uh, the Dharma through a lot these days. So this is one of the horses that's further out ahead for me right now as a practice these days for me is, is very much about truth and about truth-telling and about connecting with my own deeper truth and also, you know, the larger, uh, less personal truths of experience. So, uh, one aspect of, of this practice of sucha, the cultivation of such a is this whole field of wise reflection, which is r- really very skillful um, when, it, when we approach it correctly. So it's, it's a lot of us, for a lot of us, this comes up over and over again, is where's is the, the line between uh, all of that discursive, uh, speculative, uh, spinning out of control thinking that goes on in the mind, and that thinking that really is helping to guide us in our practice, to direct us in our practice, to keep us on track, because both of those things happen in the mind. And it, it's a, it can be you know, rather subtle at times to pick up on what is the tone of the mind, that's approaching these various questions and, you know, reflecting on them. Is it skillful? Is it not skillful? Because we all have those, we all have our own inner Dharma teacher. You know, most of the time uh, it's, it's our inner Dharma teacher that's directing our practice, not the external one that we may speak with just occasionally. We have that voice that we've internalized, that voice of wisdom that's waking up in us That's guiding us okay adjust the attitude adjust the technique adjust the approach come back to the present moment it's giving us all those little pep talks reminding us of the instructions Um, and that's a very useful voice to have that that good spiritual friend that's inside of us that's helping to direct us so we can we can mobilize that inner dharma teacher that that spiritual friend that we are to ourselves to help us to come closer to the truth around our uh, intellectual framework for what's happening so around that first what's usually spoken about as this first aspect of the eightfold path the the panya portion of the path uh, reflecting on the teachings you know what not just memorizing, okay, what are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and what's the teaching on karma, you know, the, the, the traditional ingredients that make up, you know, the, the wisdom portion of the path, but really reflecting, okay, to what extent do I understand those? To what extent am I really curious about those? What do those teachings really mean in my own experience? coming closer to the, to the truth through touching base, touching back into what we've really seen and known for ourselves, rather than just keeping it on a purely, uh, on the level of just an intellectual exercise. And especially around uh, the, the portion of the path involving aspiration, r- wise intention. Um, this has become really important for me these days, uh, both in formal practice and just in daily life, to keep checking in with, okay, what really is the intention right now? Where is that? Where is it at? Is it on the wholesome side? Is it on the unwholesome side? Am I confused? Am I compassionate? You know, to just keep checking in with where is the heart in relationship to whatever is happening and being really, really honest about that, even when uh, it's not what I would like it to be, even when what's really there, if I look honestly, is not what I want to see and it's not particularly pretty. Um, My friends and family these days... uh, would probably tell you that I'm a bit um, brutally honest these days. <laughs> it's kind of where I'm at. And then, of course, in our in our practice of Sila, then that, what's traditionally the next portion of the Eightfold Path, um, the quality of truthfulness is really indispensable. And I'm sure we all work with this a lot in our daily lives. Um, the practice of skillful speech, <laughs> which in its you know obviously in its courses form is just simply you know, ordinary honesty, not telling deliberate lies about things that are straightforward. But it has many, many more uh, subtle aspects to it. And then also in in the the final portion of the Eightfold Path, in the samadhi portion, the meditative portion, truth-telling is really, really important here. This is a lot of what we're about. Working to get closer and closer to the deeper truth of what's happening moment by moment. So we can really see the whole path from beginning to end um, and in every aspect as a quest for truth, for deeper truth, for realer truth. As with all of the paramis, the, the essence of truthfulness, it's a, a state of mind. So it's not so much the manifestation of it, but it's a, a quality of the mind. So the of of such as about our relationship to truth and our aspiration and intention around it which can then manifest, can have effects in a variety of ways. So the most obvious is the external manifestation, this kind of honesty and openness in our dealing with others coming from a place that doesn't want to deceive, doesn't want to mislead. So not just honesty in the, the letter of the law, but really in the spirit of it. We all know how important this is to maintaining a healthy social fabric, both in our immediate spheres and for the larger society. That a foundation of trust is really essential for building healthy relationships, healthy families, healthy communities, healthy nations, healthy planet. Um, As human beings, we're social animals and we depend on our social groups and relationships to survive. So trust, which comes out of open and honest communication is really necessary for these various groups and relationships that we're involved in to be healthy and to be strong. And it seems particularly now, um, although really always throughout human history, that um, this kind of trust is at such a premium in our society. Um, We look around at at all of the strife that's happening right now, which we're mostly insulated from, you know, well, during the time we're here, Um, but just the the difficulties in race relations these days or gender relations, um, party politics, uh, everything that's going on on Wall Street, We see very clearly on a daily basis, in a very immediate way, all of the difficulty that comes out of a lack of trust, lack of honesty in dealings. And even right in our own lives, we can all think of instances where someone's dishonesty, someone's deception, possibly our own, (laughs) really caused a lot of suffering, caused a lot of difficulty for us and for those around us. So when there's not trust, then it it rips apart the fabric of what holds us together as human beings, our relationships, our families, our organizations, our communities. Um, So we really see at these times how important and how precious the foundation of trust is. We can also all probably think though of instances in our lives when there has been an atmosphere of trust and there has been a sense of openness and connection that's been really supportive um, hopefully we feel that here in community, that there's this, this baseline, this uh, foundation of trust in just a very simple way um, among the community that's supportive, that's safe. So the times when we've been blessed to be part of a, a relationship or a group where we have felt safe and have felt trust, um, it's a great blessing, great benefit in life. So there's also you know, all of these other more subtle aspects of uh, truthfulness, more subtle forms of deception that we can fall into beyond just you know, lying in an ordinary sense. Um, communication that falls into the area of insinuation, uh, innuendo, um, fabrication, exaggeration, uh, sins of omission, <laughs> covering things up. There's a way in which we tend to create a hierarchy of truth. You know, we wouldn't, most of us lie or deceive about big things. Um, But little things, little, you know, the little white lies, you know, it's part of life. And in a way it is, but this is, this is an area that's really worth bringing into our consciousness and reflecting on. So the invitation is really to be aware of the intention whenever it's there to to deviate from the full truth in some way, to deviate from full openness. So if we do decide to tell a white lie, as will happen, um, that we do it with awareness and with intention and not out of habit, uh, not out of blind habit. Um, This is, again, one of the many ironies of the Dharma that it's uh, much better to do something unskillful consciously (laughs) with full awareness, than to do it unconsciously, with delusion, not realizing what we're doing. If we, if we know what's happening, then there's the chance to um, observe the effects, to learn from it, to really see how it plays out. And we might find different things when we do that. If we do it unconsciously, then we're just digging ourselves deeper into whatever ruts are already there in the mind. So th- this goes really contrary, again, to, to the general, Uh, societal uh, understanding around truthfulness. Much better to be uh, clearly (laughs) dishonest (laughs) than unknowingly dishonest. Of course, what many of us find, um, inevitably I think find at some point um, as we become more mindful that we just automatically become more truthful. for this very reason, you know, first with ourselves and then with others, simply that as we pay more attention, as we become more aware of what's actually going on in our hearts and minds, um, then it becomes more difficult to deceive ourselves. And that makes it more difficult to deceive others. The more we pay attention to what we're communicating and why, the more conscious we are in our communication, the more uncomfortable it becomes (laughs) to act to deliberately deceive. Uh, It becomes less easy to get away with that. It becomes less easy to fool ourselves about what's going on or to live with uh, the deception that we've uh, carried out once we've done it. This was something that I uh, discovered um, relatively early on in my practice. Um, This was actually one one of the first... Effects of my, my meditation practice, my Dharma practice that I observed in a really uh, clear way in my life, um, which I was not looking for. I was not looking to become a better person through meditation. <laughs> I was not looking to become more honest or open um, when I took up uh, the Dharma. That was not my uh, intention at all, um, which now with hindsight, looking back, I realize how naive that was. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of reconnect with myself. Um, regain some sense of, of the richness of my life that I felt I'd kind of lost as I was getting older. Um, but it turns out that when you, you sit down to do this or you stand up and walk to do this, there's, there's no way of avoiding the Dharma and becoming aware of uh, what's going on. So I did beca- begin to become aware when I was uh, saying something that wasn't true. I began to really notice it. And started to have this rather annoying uh, side effect that it was uh, harder to deceive people, harder to carry it off. Um, I started to become a bad liar. (laughs) Um, Not not that I was like a big liar in any kind of serious way, you know, before I took up practice, but just, you know, kind of like most people are, you know um i had this idea of of a hierarchy of truth you know that there were certain lies that you just tell for convenience you know or to 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 avoid having to deal with kind of difficult situations um you know you tell i would tell you know one guy i was washing my hair so i could go out with another guy you know that kind of thing um and i didn't really want to i didn't really want to change that (laughs) i didn't really want to change that lifestyle um that involved this kind of just petty deception on a routine basis but the more that I meditated and got in touch with what I was actually doing and feeling um, the harder it got to pull that off and this seems to be a very uh, predominant experience something that tends to come out of the practice Um, and we begin to see more and more over time that all of those little lies count Um, maybe not each one in and of themselves but as a way of life kind of over over time There's a cumulative effect that all of those little small deceptions add up to create a climate in the mind that's that's not really so passionate about truth, that's not really fully committed to the truth, and that's not so supportive of seeing the truth that is present. The, The opposing quality to deceptiveness, to deceit, um, is one of the beautiful qualities that's called ujukata, ujukata which is usually translated as rectitude, which does not sound like a particularly beautiful quality, rectitude. Um, but we might think of it as straightforwardness or, or down-to-earthness or integrity. Integrity is a, a nice word. It's the quality of heart that's directly opposed to hypocrisy and deceit. They're in direct opposition, so they can't coexist Um, Classically Ujjugata is said to crush fraudulence, to crush deceit, you know, it's a very strong language that's used to describe the effect of uh, Ujjugata. And it's said to be one of the, the naturally beautiful effects of mindfulness and wisdom, this kind of directness, this kind of simplicity in our dealings both with ourselves internally and with others externally. You know, simply saying, okay, this is the way it is. This is the truth of how things are. Without, without a whole lot of big fuss or fanfare around it. It's kind of simple, down-to-earth, straightforwardness. I think it's probably this quality that... Um, uh, the manifestation of this quality that that makes some of my uh Burmese teachers, some of my Asian teachers that I've had seem particularly uh like they can read your mind. I think I have a feeling it's this quality that they're reading you know when when we walk into the room, they can kind of tell just from our whole demeanor you know are we in a place that's that's open and straightforward you know non deceptive or are we in a place that's kind of like okay, I've got to put up a certain front, I've got to, you know, impress the teacher, you know, I think, I think they can probably sense that energy as soon as we walk into the room. When we're able to mobilize this quality um, in relationship and the external manifestation, then there's a real uh, lightness and joy that comes into our life, both in the in the moment and, and just more generally, that sense of confidence that we don't have any facades to maintain we don't have to to keep up a front or put up a front we don't have to keep track of who we what we've told to who Um, we don't have to worry that we've said things that might come back to bite us later so this there's this joy of, of blamefulness of blamelessness the joy of blamelessness that the Buddha spoke about often in relationship to to the practice of sila, that it's just a, a great relief and a great source of happiness in life to know that we're basically doing our best to do the right thing. And we can reflect on the truthfulness that we offer the world with a great satisfaction, it's a great gift to the world, this gift to others of knowing that they can rely on us that they can have this kind of trust in us, they can have this kind of confidence in us, that they don't need to fear us, they don't need to fear that through our speech, through our action, that we're going to be doing anything that will deliberately cause them harm. So they can relax. It's a great gift to others. And the Buddha said that that this uh, straightforwardness, this kind of rectitude, in in living in an honest way, as as well as uh, perfecting the other um, aspects of skillful uh, action in the world, is a really appropriate place to draw a healthy sense of self-esteem from. So the Buddha said that that it's these qualities, it's this gift to the world of fear of not having to fear us, of living in a way where people don't have to be afraid of us, is this great gift that we give to the world is a really appropriate source of healthy self-esteem. That rather than, than basing our sense of self-worth on our position in the world, our wealth, our possessions, all these kinds of things, um, which are really very fragile, a much more reliable and a much healthier place to, to draw that sense of our own goodness and our own self-worth from, is from how we are in the world. So th- this is an interesting teaching um, that you know the Buddha didn't say that, oh, well, there's no self. So it doesn't matter how we feel about ourselves because there's really no self anyway, <laughs> you know. He recognized that we do live in the in the world. We do live in the world and in a conventional way, especially those of us that are householders. We have lives, we have relationships, and that we want to build a foundation for those lives that is is wholesome and that's appropriate. We don't need to deny that aspect of our lives. We just simply need to to get our ducks in order and set ourselves in the right direction. It's said that in all all of the countless lifetimes as a bodhisattva, um, this parami of truthfulness is the only one that the Buddha never violated. So he wasn't always perfect in his behavior in other ways, but he never was deliberately deceitful from the time that he set his heart on the goal of becoming a Buddha. This is one that he always stuck to because uh, he had this uh, intuitive sense of the real importance of being honest with others, being honest with himself. So this parami of such a, it has all of these ways that it plays out externally in our relationships, in our behavior, and possibly even more importantly, it has all of the various internal manifestations. So since everything begins with the mind, how we're relating internally with ourselves, how honest we are with ourselves, invariably will affect everything else that happens externally. So there's this whole, whole aspect of honesty in our relationship with ourselves, being open and honest in dealing with ourselves, of not wanting to uh, deceive or mislead ourselves, which we all get to see how that happens in many different ways. Um, perfecting the Parami of Satya has to do with a real commitment con- to connect with the truth of our own experience as fully and deeply as possible. So the practice of of internal honesty, internal truthfulness is really inseparable from our mindfulness practice, from our insight practice. The two are so intimately interconnected uh, that mindfulness is really also a truthfulness practice. It's the practice of seeing what's really true for us in any given moment, what's true in our experience. Sometimes with my children, um, I try to trick them into meditating. Uh, by playing the now game, which is something that was recommended by a, a teacher online. So we snuggle up together you know, in the quiet at night and kind of enjoy being close together. And then we tell each other, uh, you know, what do we notice now? You know, I notice uh, the warmth of your body. You know, I notice the sound of the crickets. I notice that I'm sleepy. You know, all of those kinds of things. Getting a little bit closer to the truth of what's happening beginning to develop that habit of, of honesty connecting with um, what's more true right now what's what we what's called paramata which is a word that literally means true truth what's the true truth of the moment which is really exactly the same thing that we're doing here we're trying to connect with the true truth of the moment as opposed to what's called Panyati which is the conventional truth of the moment Um, All of our ideas, all of our interpretations, our whole philosophical framework, our whole worldview, all of our ideas about ourselves, all of our ideas about our practice. That whole world of concept, conceptual reality is what's referred to as panyati. And this is really the big hurdle that we have to cross in practice, right? Is being able to to jump over that hump, (laughs) of all of our ideas, all of our concepts about what's happening to get closer to the paramatta, the real truth, the real actual experience of what's happening. All of those ideas and interpretations, uh, in a way, we could look at them as a form of self-deception. They're a manifestation not of, you know, they're not lies kind of in an ethical sense, um, but they're, they're lies in just the sense of coming out of of uh, delusion out of a misunderstanding of what the real truth of the moment is and they create this this fog that colors our understanding of what's happening so that we're not really connecting with what's actually true in the moment all of that conceptual reality is um, you know it's accurate within its own sphere within its own realm of conventional ra- reality, as far as it goes, you know those, those concepts and ideas are are more or less useful to us in being able to live our lives, navigate the world, do what we have to do. But they're really quite far removed from paramatta, from the from the true truth, from the real truth of the moment, and they're they're quite unreliable. Also, you know this is this is the thing with conceptual realities; it's really quite unreliable. We may have ideas that are. Accurate. We may have ideas that are inaccurate to, you know, to varying degrees. We may have ideas that are helpful and supportive. We have many ideas that are unhelpful and unsupportive, and yet they're there <laughs> within our conceptual reality and very difficult to ra- eradicate. So conceptual reality is just, aside from being very far removed from the real reality of the moment, it's not so reliable. It can help us or it can hinder us at different times. But we're so conditioned to see through that lens, to see through that lens of conceptual reality, um, that it's very, very difficult to peel that off. You know, it's like getting cataract surgery. (laughs) You know, we've got this big, thick veil of confusion over how we're seeing the world, and it's like we've got to pry that off so we can really see things how they are. It's very difficult, it's a hard task. But that is what we're here to do. So when we practice mindfulness, whether it's formally sitting on the cushion or just informally as we go through the day, uh, there's this aspect of truthfulness, of truth-telling to the practice, trying to get closer to what's really true, strengthening that that commitment to the truth and activating our ability to see more clearly what's really happening. The Buddha talked about two types of uh, deception that we engage in with ourselves, two different ways of lying to ourselves, essentially. Uh, The first being ignorance, which we talk about a lot. Ignorance being just simply not knowing, just simply not knowing what's happening. (laughs) And the second one being delusion, which we could think of as knowing wrongly, uh, misperceiving, knowing inaccurately what's happening. So as we're sitting in meditation, or we're talking to a friend, or a coworker, or um, typing away, or reading on our device, and we're so absorbed in the stories that are being spun by the mind that we just we can't feel our bodies. We're not aware of our emotional responses we're having. That's a state of ignorance of just simply not knowing what's actually going on in the moment. Then there's the case when we're doing those kinds of things and we're so uh, absorbed in the stories that we believe they're really true that we actually get drawn into the, the conceptual uh, ideas about what's happening and we, bl- we buy into them that those really are an accurate reflection of reality in some absolute way so that's delusion knowing wrongly knowing incorrectly what's happening thinking that something is happening that's not really happening in an absolute sense and we see over and over again in our practice how there are many, many layers of ignorance and delusion um, that are constantly covering up the actual experience of the moment that are, that are wrapped around the core experience of truth in the moment. So we often compare this practice to uh, peeling an onion. You know, we, we pull off one layer of delusion, one layer of ignorance, and we get a little bit closer to the truth, but there's still a lot of layers to go. Uh, I like this metaphor um, because uh, this can often involve a lot of tears, also like peeling an onion, <laughs> but it can also be very savory <laughs> and delicious. <laughs> There's an interesting teaching that I came across in, in the Abhidhamma and the Buddhist psychology talking about a hierarchy of concepts, you know, that all, not all concepts are created equally. So there are, there are ideas and thoughts and concepts, again, coming back to this inner Dharma teacher, that point more directly to, to actual experience, to real reality, to real truth, true truth. And then there are ideas and concepts that are, that are many layers of, of concept away from that real reality, very far removed, and don't particularly bring us back to the present moment. So, you know, Winnie in her last talk, um, you know, gave wonderful... Uh, teaching about using the practice of noting which which comes out of this idea that there is a way that we can use concepts to really point us back to bring us back to connect us with the real uh, truth of the moment so this is using that inner dharma teacher using that using the concepts that are available to us in a skillful way to help us to connect as opposed to um, you know moving further and further out the layers of the onion to a layer that is of, of concept that is just completely fabricated upon layers and layers of ideas and very far removed um, from the truth. So every layer that we peel off of that onion brings us a little bit closer to the truth. You know, it's, there's some truth in each layer, but um, as we get further and further in, closer and closer to the core, then what we're seeing, what we're understanding, becomes more and more true. And there's a real joy to this, again, that this... This parami of uh, the cultivation of truthfulness and honesty is a source of potentially great joy. And we often experience this in our practice, that when we finally connect with that that elephant in the room that we've been missing, when we finally connect and identify and, and really feel that aspect of the experience that we've just been missing, that we haven't been able to connect with, then there's a sense of, oh right, that's what it is. You know, it's, it's not necessarily that the experience becomes pleasant, you know, if it's something difficult that we're, we're dealing with, but there's this deep sense of, of real satisfaction and richness and just in being con- in contact with what's true. This is the kind of joy um, that is really be- an enlightenment factor. It's kind of spiritual joy, joy that comes not from experiencing something pleasant, but really from being in the flow of what's true, being in closer contact with what's true this real delight that comes out of seeing things as they actually are. I remember having an experience like this uh, in one of the long retreats that I sat, where I was having just uh, persistent neck pain. Like really, really just was con- became constantly there. It was driving me crazy. It was really painful. It could barely, you know, when I was sitting, I felt it. When I was walking, I felt it. When I laid down, I felt it. Everything that I did, I felt it. Uh, I felt like I was becoming, you know, turning it to the hunchback of Notre Dame. And, you know, I was noting it, I was noting burning, I was noting stabbing, I was noticing, you know, pulling, and, you know, all of, the, all of those things. I was noting uh, aversion in the mind, different, different thoughts about it, thinking, and, and all of this kind of thing uh, really caught in, uh, as I'd been instructed, to really to, to uh, explore the minutiae of the experience. And at some point, I was just doing walking meditation uh, in the dining room, and you know, again, doing this kind of detailed exploration of okay, what are the sensations? What are the mental states? What are the thoughts? When suddenly things just came into focus, and I th- realized, I hate this. <laughs> I hate this experience. This is really awful. And I was like, ah, you know, like, this this great relief just in the moment. And we've all, all probably had experiences like this when, like, we finally get down to to, to brass tacks and connect with that layer of truth that is more true. There's this, this great feeling of, okay, this is not now pleasant, but this is it, this is what's real, this is the truth. So there's this great joy in connecting with the truth. So we start by, um, you know, peeling off that layer of conceptual reality, you know, one layer of it after another, many layers of conceptual al- conceptual reality, first peeling off kind of the really big stories, the really uh, kind of overarching grand stories of our life about, you know, who we are as people and our psychological and conditioning that came from our childhood and, the, you know, the really big, complicated conceptual stories about uh, what's true. I mean, start by kind of peeling that one off or at least loosening it up a little bit. And a couple of more layers down, we might hit the layer of truth that uh, says, oh, I've got this horrible knee pain. Closer to the truth, but still a lot of concept in there. And finally, we can, we, can, we can peel off enough of the layer of Panyati that we can start to get down to the paramatta of really connecting with, okay, that, that knee pain is actually burning, it's actually stabbing, it's actually uh, pressure, it's actually whatever it is, and start to really feel the experience of the moment. And as we peel off those layers of paramata, then at some point we can start to get down to seeing even deeper truths, the universal truths of the moment, which is that knee pain is constantly changing every single moment. <laughs> it's completely out of control. Comes uninvited, goes uninvited. So we start to see the, the universal characteristics, the layer of insight, where we get this deeper truth about experience that everything is fleeting, everything is ephemeral, everything is impersonal. We wade through that for a while, peel off layer after layer of that. There's many layers of that, that we see a greater resolution, greater uh, clarity, greater keenness, greater uh, force, greater power, until we finally get to the core of the onion. (laughs) And this is kind of like the the radical teaching of the Buddha, that there is actually a nugget at the center of the onion, and it's actually a jewel. that there is a fundamental truth underneath all of this or inside all of this. When we peel off all the layers of onion, then there is actually a, an, an ultimate truth, the deepest truth that we can access as human beings through mindfulness, that we can come to know beyond all those layers of the story, beyond all those layers of sensation, all the moments of experience, even the the, the deeper truths, the, the universal characteristics of reality, that there's a, a core truth in there that's more true, more true than anything else that we can know. It's the, the foundation truth, the, the underlying truth behind everything, and that we can know that as human beings, and that once we've seen that truth, that nothing is ever the same again. It completely transforms our whole understanding of what truth is and what is really going on here. I'd like to end just with a little story about Ajahn Mahabua, who was another great uh, yogi and teacher from the Thai tradition. He was a student of Ajahn Moon, uh, one of the other great um, Thai masters from the 20th century. And Ajahn, Mun, Ajahn Mahabua was one of 16 children. <laughs> born into a rich family of rice farmers in Thailand just about a hundred years ago. He's coming up on his uh, centennial of his birthday. And when he was uh, 21, when he'd finished school and come to adulthood, his parents asked him to temporarily ordain as a monk, which is something that's commonly done in you know these traditional Theravada cultures. Uh, because it's supposed to bring merit to the parents. So his his parents basically asked him to ordain temporarily as a monk and then dedicate the merit of his practice to them. It's it's a a traditional thing that's done in that society, nothing wrong with it. Um, But as it happened, once uh, Ajahn Mahabua found himself in Rhodes and started, uh, he received meditation instructions, a little bit, um, mostly a lot of teachings about the Dharma, he was unexpectedly, to to himself and everyone else, seized by urgency, as the expression goes, and he became inspired to actually realize the teachings that he was learning about. And after he had finished up his his kind of initial time getting his training, getting his uh, uh, academic training at the monastery, he went in search of uh, Ajahn Moon, who was reputed at that at that time as uh, one of the greatest teachers and uh, one of the, the most realized teachers, possibly in our hunt, um, so that he could really get the, the lowdown, get the real deal on uh, practice. And it said when he finally met him, it, it seemed as if Ajahn Moon already knew his desires and his intentions and also his doubts. And Ajahn Moon clarified the questions in his mind and showed him that the paths leading to Nibbana still exist. And this is what Ajahn Mahabua reportedly said to himself upon uh, meeting uh, Ajahn Moon and speaking with him about the Dharma. He said, Now I have come to the real thing. He's made everything clear, and I no longer have doubts. It is now up to me to be true or otherwise. I'm determined to be true. So let's go ahead and uh, share the blessing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.